So I, I wanted to tell you that um, all along, say over the last three months, we've been shooting for um, the last Sunday of October, October 28th to be in. Now, the likelihood that that's going to happen is pretty high. It's not 100%. And uh, trying to make a decision now as we're getting very, very close, what we've done is we've said as soon as we can get in, we'll get in. But we're going to set November 11th, two weeks later, as our official grand opening. That should give us, barring some unforeseen goofiness, that should give us the exact window we need to make sure that we can get in. Now, the likelihood we're going to be in on the 28th, pretty high. The likelihood we're going to be on in on November 11th, dramatically higher. And since we have some special guests we're trying to get here with us, they needed a more definitive date than, oh, we think the 28th. So November 11th, Sunday, November 11th, um, that will be our grand opening Sunday. You'll hear more about that this week in the mail. And you'll hear, or I'm sorry, not in the mail, but in your email uh, if you take next steps and that sort of thing. And then um, you'll hear more about it next week as we kind of unveil for you what's going to happen. It really is dramatically um, exciting for, for all of us. Um, those of you that have served, worked, um, given, prayed, made it happen, read the scripture in our place, thank you. Um, this new home is, is amazing. Let me tell you why we did it. Um, we didn't build a new home because we got tired of doing setup and tear down. Although, let's be honest, we're tired of doing setup and tear down. Um, we didn't build a new home because that's what you do when you're a church like us. You got to build a cool, new, hip space. That, that's not why we did it. We believed from the very beginning when we started this church and the very beginning when we started this project that God had put it on our hearts to leverage all that we had to reach as many people as possible. And we feel like being eight years old in very mobile environments, we've done a remarkable job. We, we feel like God looks at us and says, well done, good and faithful. And that makes us very, very proud. But we also believe that we've hit a bit of a ceiling in what we're able to do. Um, the truth is, after about five years in a mobile setting, the statistics are pretty grim. Mobile churches tend to begin to decline. And so we needed to leverage this opportunity. And so a year ago, we came forward and said, this is what we're going to do. And we decided we would do it over 30 months. We'd collect money over 30 months. And then at some point, we'd have enough and we'd begin well, we're way ahead of what I honestly believed we would be able to do. I, I've told you before, I'm man, God's man of faith and power, yeah. And uh, so uh, numbers speak loudly to me, and so uh, you guys have dramatically stepped up and, and made this happen. Thank you so much. Well, here we are about a year in, way short of the 30 months, and we're going to be able to get in by the skin of our teeth, honestly. It's not going to be all that we hoped for, but over the few months to come, the money as it continues to come in, as you guys continue to give, as God continues to provide, we're going to be able to finish out that space to the level of completeness that we want. And so if you're thinking Taj Mahal, uh, you're in the wrong place. <laughs> uh, it's not going to be that. It will be functional. It'll be clean. It'll be new. It'll be a landmark you can invite your friends to. Now, I'm telling you this all because there's one little piece of the pie where we did splurge a bit. It was my office. It's all in marble. and gr No, I'm kidding. Uh, I'm totally kidding. No, I don't even have an office in that building, so it, it's all good. Let me tell you where we splurged just a bit. We had to make, we've been making some decisions like, you know, A or B, this or that. Can't do it all. Got to make some hard choices. What are we going to do? And so what we've decided to do was to leverage first the outreach to the community. And the primary way that that's going to happen is in our signage. I referenced it in the video that you just watched that in just a matter, by the end of four weeks, the sign will be complete and up. Um, by this point, it's about three and a half weeks. You're going to love this sign. And it is a place where we splurge in terms of like if you're making decisions of all that you can't do, but you want to do enough. For us to do a sign, it doesn't give us an immediate functionality, like it doesn't put 
seats in a room. It doesn't put a screen on a wall. It doesn't, you know, give literature to kids. But what it does do, it says to our community, we're here. And since that was the major motivation of us doing this project to begin with, we thought spending a little extra money on the sign and get, su- sucking every bit of, of life out of the code that we could to get as big a sign as possible. We felt like that was an essential uh, for us to do as, as a church. And so that, that's what we've done. And so when you drive by this sign, here was my concern as we're sitting there this week making this decision. I said to the staff, I said, when our church drives by and sees this sign, here's what they're going to think. Oh, they don't need any more money. Clearly. (laughs) I know how people are. I'm the same way. I'm the same way. Let me tell you, what we've done here is we have leveraged everything to make this sign happen. Because we believe it's the first thing people will see. When they drive down I-75, all 438 billion of them a a day that drive by I-75, they're going to see our sign. When you want to invite people to our church, they're going to see the sign. You're going to be able to say that new green sign that you can see for eight miles, that's us. You know, with the beaming headlights and the smoke and the fire and all all that. I'm kidding. It's not quite. I'm building it up much more so that when you see it, you go, oh, that's not so bad. Um, Yeah. So so we're really stretching. Now, some things we've pulled back on. you know, I, I don't know that our lobby is going to have quite the level of finish. We're, we're wanting eventually, maybe by Christmas or at Easter at the latest, to have several sitting areas, couches, chairs, kind of like multiple living rooms in our lobby space and some high-top tables and seats. We're going to have some of that, but it probably won't be as decked out as we'd like it to be. All the classrooms won't have quite the level of finish. I mean, our goal is by Easter that it kind of looks like if you can do Disney World in Ohio, that that's kind of what it looks like in our kids' space. It's going to take us a while, so... I wanted you to, to be prepared for that so that as you see this stuff happening, you don't think that we've gone crazy. Um, this was a decision we made intentionally. I think it's something you'll be proud about. And when we surveyed the few people who are like around a lot, they all seemed to agree that leveraging all that we could to reach our community was essential and that we as a congregation, as we've done from day one, we'd bear the burden of waiting for what we wanted as we could. But this would have to be done first. So I, I hope you hear our hearts on that. It's really exciting. I want to tell you one more thing before I jump into today's message. Um, Beginning next week and going for two weeks, so next Sunday and the Sunday after, we're doing something that we rarely ever do here at Four Corners. We're having a special guest speaker uh, on our stage. His name, many of you may recognize this name, his name is Dr. Dean Nicholas. Uh, Dean Nicholas is a close friend of mine. He's also the principal at Cincinnati Hills Christian Academy High School, where I used to teach. He used to technically be my boss. Um, and he is a phenomenal Bible scholar and an amazing communicator. But most of all, he, I think he has incredible insight into families and students and marriage and life as he has served in this school, watching what happens with life and how it has impacts on, on students. So if you're an aunt, an uncle, a grandparent, anybody that has kids in your life, if you're just like a mom and dad, Dean is going to come and speak with us from God's word about something that he's seeing happen in the lives of students that he'd like to kind of raise the, I don't want to say alarm, but maybe at least put a blip on the, on the dashboard, make, make the small little red light turn on, or at least a yellow light so we can begin to pay attention. And so uh, if, if, you, if you have anything else going on over the next two weeks and you're thinking about not being here, I'm going to ask you, if you at all can, like adjust that, go ahead and come here. And uh, let's engage this topic. I'm going to hold it from you um, until he actually uh, presents it to you next week. But um, when we were talking and uh, just out of our conversation, we both agreed that he and I both struggle with this stuff as we try to manage all that God has in front of us and all that we feel like we have to do. And we're both concerned about the impact it has on our larger family and our friends. And 
we both decided that this was important enough, and I wanted him to come from his different perspective than I have and just share that with us. So I hope you'll be here to hear that. Now let me take you right to the pages of the Bible. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is talking to the people that he often talked to. These are the people who watched him do miracles. These are the people who heard him give that famous sermon on the mount where he said, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the poor in spirit. And evidently, we don't get a whole lot of background material, but evidently somebody had asked a question or there was a conversation around this point because it seems like almost out of the blue, Jesus begins to explain something that I think is important. He explains why it is that some people change and others stay the same. Why is it the same kinds of people in the same kinds of environments listening and experiencing the same kinds of things, some get the benefit and move forward and change, and others don't. Now listen, if you're a leader type, if you're a manager, like in an office, this is a perplexing problem. You already know about this because you'll put forth a new agenda item, send the memos, have the meetings, bring in the trainer, and some of your employees, partners, team members, they'll grab hold, embrace the thing, and move forward. <laughs> and others won't. If you're a parent, you know what this is like if you have multiple kids or if you babysat groups of kids. You'll give a, a set of instructions and everybody nods. Everybody makes eye contact when you finally get their attention and, you know, put down the video game. Eye contact right here, right here guys. And, you, and everybody nods and then only a few move forward. Jesus said it in this simple statement, appealing to the memory that these folks had of their heritage. He said, in the land where we are, years ago, when the major prophets were walking around, there were a lot of lepers. Leprosy was a, a skin disease. It probably, in the Bible, when you read that word, includes all kinds of manners of visible skin disease. Jesus says, back in the old days, there were many lepers, many of them. But in the ministry of Elisha, only one of them was healed. Bunches of them around, like bunches but only one was healed and his name was naaman and instantly everybody in the crowd unlike us because we're not quite as familiar everybody's in the crowd goes back several everybody's mind in the crowd goes back several hundred years to the story of naaman the leper and i want to tell you that story before i tell you the last of how we discover god's will for our life and they're obviously i hope for you and they are at least in my mind intricately connected so here's the deal about naaman naaman wasn't from the land of israel he was from the land to the north. He wasn't in the party. He wasn't Jewish. He was a Gentile. In fact, he was the ruling chief of an opposing army. There was a little country by the name of Aram, right north of Israel. And Naaman was the chief of the army of Aram. He was the chief of the army of the Aramites. And so this doesn't make him necessarily friendly to Israel. In fact, just a few years earlier before the story I'm telling, Israel and Aram were at war. And there was an arrow from an Aramite that penetrated the heart of the king of Israel. And the Bible says when that skirmish was over, the king of Aram and his comrades, including Naaman, were able to carry off from Israel the spoils of war. And one of the spoils of war that Naaman ended up with was a little girl from Israel to serve as a house slave. And that was normal in those days. You would fight and you'd carry off. Now, here, here's the picture I'm trying to paint. I'm not so much getting caught up in the history of it, but in Naaman's world, Naaman was doing his normal routine. If you're the commander of the armies of Aram, you fight wars and you lead 
victories, hopefully, and that's what you do. He's just going about his life. And in the normal course of life, and here's where I want you to lean in, you see a picture of God beginning to tweak and maneuver without even naming knowing what's going on. It's not an accident that you're here today. It's not. Our staff, when we get together and plan and pray about what we're going to do in this room, usually at least a year out, and then again about six months out, and three months out, and a month out, and a week before, as we're planning and plotting what's going to happen in this room, one truth keeps us very sober-minded about this job. And that is that every single person that walks in this door, God, on some level, whether you're aware of it or not, ordains for you to be here. And we don't ever want to take that lightly. And some of you, honestly, you're aware of God's activity in your life. And, and it's like you're trying to participate. You're trying to find it. You're trying to seek it out. We use a, a phrase for that. We call it discerning God's will, discovering God's will, trying to walk in God's will. And some of you, honestly, like you're not. Like you're here and you just, you know, it's the thing you do maybe. You're in a pattern or somebody brought you or, or you love your church or there are friends here. And all that's well and good, but you're not here by accident. And sometimes we're not aware that God is very active around us. We, we don't sense the activity of God in a direct way. I think this is exactly what was going on in Naaman's life. His story in your Bible is found in 2 Kings. I don't have the scriptures for you because I'm just going to tell you. And I'm going to take you to a few principles that we're going to extract in a moment from God's word. But his, his story is found in your Old Testament in the book of 2 Kings. And he's got this little servant girl from the land of Israel in the house. And one day, as Naaman's just living his life, because we live in a broken world where sin is rampant, because that is true, sometimes choices that are made that you didn't make impact you. Sometimes people do things that affect your life. Sometimes you get diseases that aren't a direct result of your behavior. It's just that a germ or a, a mutation of a cell happens in a strange way. Sin is pervasive in this world. The impact on us is huge. Our choices, of course, but sometimes not things we did, and the impact of sin begins to touch us, and that's exactly where Naaman was. He wakes up one day, and he discovers that he has some skin issues. I don't know what that looked like, but I know in that day, they never thought, I'll just run, run down to Walgreens and get a little, whatever. They didn't do that. When you had skin issues, it was a big deal. Leprosy was the most terrifying disease. And without great hygiene, without understanding germ theory, you can imagine that it gets pretty ugly pretty quick. And, but beyond that, there was a social, a social ramification for leprosy. When that happened, they knew that if often you, if you were around people that were sick, just common sense, you would get sick. So the folks who ended up with skin diseases were put out of the city. Whatever rank and whatever land, whatever money they had, Big, big deal, right? Yeah, you begin to lose that, caring for that, you're, you're ostracized. Naaman discovers he's got a skin issue, and so now he's living the life. The picture that we get historically is he's living a life somewhat as a recluse, trying to hold on to normal living, but the circumstances of his life have changed so much that he can't. And one day, the servant girl, years ago, just doing his life, that he comes across, the servant girl says to Naaman's wife, there's a man in my hometown and he has like a direct connection to God. We call him a prophet. And I think if, if your husband were to go to him, I think, I think maybe his situation could be made better. The wife tells Naaman, there's a prophet in Israel, in the land of... And he's like, Israel? Well, anything good come out of Israel. And he tells, there's a prophet in Israel, and he has a direct connection to God, and I think you should go down there. 
And in the story, when you read it, you get a little bit of the, the mental shift that begins to happen in Naaman's mind. In the conversations that happen, you discover that what he's thinking is, I have high rank. I'm not going to go see some puny prophet in a, in a district that we've already defeated. You sense a little bit later on that he struggles with all kinds of, why should I do, how do I, or wh- why should I go there? This, they, they should be coming to me. I have a position of honor. They should be coming to me. It should be an honor to treat me. <laughs> Eventually, his wife convinces him to go. So he sends his servants, as you would do, to the prophet. And they discuss. And the prophet, rather than getting up like he would normally do to a person of honor and, send, and going directly to Naaman and doing whatever prophets do to help people connect with God, instead of doing that, the prophet sends a servant to go tell Naaman what to do. So I'm going to accelerate the story here, and then we're going to make our point. The servant tells Naaman, and the prophet says this, Naaman, if you'll dip yourself in the river Jordan seven times, God will heal you. If you'll dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times, God will heal your skin. And then this internal dialogue of Naaman heats up. He says, I've got beautiful water in my homeland up here. Why do I have to go all the way down to the Jordan River and their territory to that muddy little stream when I've got fresh flowing water up here? I mean, if it's just about taking a bath, I could do that here. Some time passes. We don't know exactly how long, but there's this discussion. There's this dialogue, some of it going on in his head, some of it recorded in the pages of the Bible. Eventually, Naaman, without ever engaging the prophet directly face to face, follows the instruction of the prophet through this servant girl humbles himself beyond his position and just, and here's the key, just does the thing that he was asked to do. In fact, in the discussion, there's a, there's a, there's a seminal phrase that I, I want to put in your, in, in your mind. As he's trying to decide, am I going to do this very beneath me kind of thing? It doesn't make sense. I can't connect the dots. I don't understand how if I do X, Y will be the result. I don't understand why if I go here, it's any different than if I went over here and did the thing. In the middle of all of that, one of the discussers in the story says, you know, if the prophet had asked you to do some grand thing, some like massively big thing, you, you would have done that. You would have gathered all the resources, put all the people in place, put on a dramatic pageant, and you would have rallied around the grand thing. And here he's asked you to do this very simple thing that's a little inconvenient and a little bit out of your comfort zone and a little stretching, and you're hesitating. That comment turns Naaman, and he decides to go ahead and do it. And the Bible tells us an interesting set of events, that when Naaman dipped one time, no change. And when he dipped two times, no change. And when he dipped three times, no change. And four and five and six. But on the seventh dip, with no apparent change in the process at all up to this point, on the seventh dip, when he comes up out of the water, his skin, the Bible says, is like the skin of a young man. He's completely healed. It's like, you know, anti-aging cream, whatever. All plastic surgery, all rolled up in one. He is perfectly healed. Hundreds of years later, Jesus is telling the story, and they're discussing, to some degree, Jesus wants them to know that not everybody gets it. Not everybody experiences the thing. And he references Naaman's story. 
A story of a person who didn't want to humble himself, didn't want to do the small thing, didn't want to stretch, would rather go for the grand, big, awesome thing than to do the little thing that God had specifically put in his path to do. Years before, God had already begun orchestrating events, clarifying the route, long before Naaman knew that servant girl was put into that household through a crazy series of events to give that message at just the right time. And when Naaman finally did the thing, all of the thing, his full restoration took place. And Jesus says that there's a truth in there for his listeners hundreds of years later. And I'm saying to you, there's a truth in here for us. So for three weeks, we've been discussing God's will. And I've been trying to elevate in you the fact that there is a will of God for you. There is a personal will of God for you. That God has a design and a plan that he doesn't just love you, and he does. That he loves you to such a degree that each of you have, and I have, a specific path that he wants us to follow. And that that path is knowable, not instantly in a moment, but over the course of our life, different portions of that path get revealed to us. And as we step into one, the next one is highlighted for us. And obedience begats clarity. And we can actually, at the end of our days, look back and say, God, thank you for making my life, as the Apostle Paul worded it this way, imaginably more than I could ever ask or imagine. God, what you did with my life was so much more than what I could have ever done on my own. Thank you. By the way, this is the testimony of people who've been walking with Jesus for 40, 50, 60 years. God, you have done more with my life. They get that perspective that comes with age and history. For many of us on the front end of the journey of, with the Lord, that discerning God's will seems like such a mystery. There's such a veil in front of us. How do you pierce through? What do you have to do so that you're not one of the many who have the same kind of lostness, but you're one of the special, like Naaman, who actually experiences the full restoration and the full healing and the full coming to who you are and that freshness again? Part of it is, part of it is, friends, is wrapped up in a couple of questions I want to ask you. What is the key to walking in God's will? Here's one of the first ones. The key is not asking the question, what am I going to do with my life? That is not the key. That's often where we start. It's often because a sense of, of lostness or, or meandering or a sense of I don't know what to do or I'm facing the thing, I don't know where to go with it. And we'll ask ourselves, well, what are we going to do here? I encounter this all the time as students who are about to graduate from high school and move into college and thinking about where to go to college and what they're going to do with the life and the pressure to have their entire life figured out point by point when they're in 10th grade was dramatic at the school where I taught. I watched my own daughter when she turned 16, 17. She felt like she had to have her entire life figured out. I learned in working with those students, I learned in my own life that the first question, the best question, the most clarifying question is not what am I going to do with my life? I'm going to give you the better question that I think begins to help you penetrate the darkness and pierce through the wall. It's, who, who am I going to be in my life? If you have a sense of lostness, if you don't know exactly what God wants you to do, if you're still trying to figure it out, before you get to the what am I going to do, God has put a call on your life. God's will for you and me is not first, here's the activity you're going to engage in that's going to give you a sense of fulfillment, that's going to help you understand your purpose, that's going to help you understand your history. God's first call to all of us is, who am I going to be? 
We talked about it last week. God is more concerned in your development than even getting you to the destination anyway. He really is. That's why the moment you think you have clarity, there's some crazy twist or turn that happens. You ever notice that in life? The moment you think you got it figured out, it seems like it lasts about, what, 35 seconds or so? And then, then something happens. The moment you feel like your marriage finally has clarity, there's a new thing introduced. Somebody loses a job. Somebody gets sick. There's a, there's a kid issue that you never thought you were going to have to deal with because you're clearly better parents than the parents down the street who just dealt with the issue. Something happens. That's why God first works on who you are before he works on what you do. That's why he invites us into a relationship with him before he ever tells us to try to live for him. Unlike a lot of people who you're going to try to invite to church, they won't come because they're thinking this. I can't go to church. My life is a mess. I got to get it figured out. And then when I get it relatively clean, then I'm qualified to go to church. I had a good friend. I'm going to go public with this just as a little bit of accountability, but please don't ask me about it because it makes me very uncomfortable. I have a, I have a friend who um, paid for me to get some personal training. And um, my first thought was, oh, I need to lose some weight before I start that. Isn't that stupid? You've done the same thing. You're stupid too. There are things you know you needed to do. There are. There are things you know you've needed to do. And rather than engage them, you thought you would get it cleaned up, get it prepared. I don't know why we do that. People do it with weight loss all the time. They do it with spiritual issues all the time. They do it with money all the time. I need to sit down with somebody at church. I've heard Ben talk about how people get help with debt. It's so embarrassing where we are. I'm going to get it mostly cleaned up. And then I'm going to go sit down with somebody and talk about my finances at Four Corners. Dumb. God is more concerned with helping you right where you are, and he begins with who you are. The wrong question is, <laughs> what am I going to do with my life? And the right question is, who am I going to be? So let's talk about the first question, another way to kind of look at that. The wrong first question, what is God's will for my life? If you spiritualize it, it's what is God's will. If you're not, it's like, what do I do? The problem with this is, is that the focus is on some desired future experience or reality. It's what I want. It's what I want to experience. It's what I want to have. So the wrong question is, is what is God's will for my life? It's okay. I, and if you mean the right thing, it's fine. But the clarifying question is, who does God want me? Who does he will me to be? What character is he developing me? And this focuses on developing a relationship with God and taking steps today to do what we already know we should do. I've said this several times in the series. There is a providential will of God. God's providential will is what God is already doing in the world. Jesus submitted to this. In Matthew chapter 26, when Jesus was about to face the cross, he prayed in the garden, he prayed this phrase, and it's very revealing for us. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to do this, Jesus is saying. In, in, like in my flesh, in my natural, I don't want to do this. If there's another way, let this happen. Then he says, but I don't want to do what I, I want to do your will, and you're clearly saving people. You clearly want a relationship with people. So I'm going to submit to your providential will, and I'm going to take captive every other thought I have, and I'm going to do your will. And I've asked you a few times, can you make a direct dotted line to some activity where you're taking the resources you have and leveraging for God's global agenda. But he is saving people and bringing them into relationship with him. If you can, then you're doing largely the part of discerning God's providential will, what's going to happen in the world. God is always going to be saving people. 
And if you can't, then getting God's will fixed, you need that, that's where you need to begin. The first step for you is, who am I going to be? And then secondly, it's, God, I know what you're already doing. I want to find out a way to align myself with that. I mean, if there's chaos and a lack of clarity in your life, align yourself with God's agenda to save people. And there's a thousand million ways to do that. I mean, it's as diverse as there are callings and gifts and experiences represented in this room. But the key is the same. The goal, the focus is the same. God, you're calling people to yourself, which means that in some degree, you're calling me to help call people to you. And so we regularly say, get on a team, serve, find a way, give, leverage your resources, use your intellect, use your emotion, use, get in small group, call people to Jesus. Because God accomplishes his providential will, honestly, through willing and unwilling people. Eventually it gets done, and if you don't want to do it, God will use somebody else. But it's not just a providential will, there's a, there's a moral will. God's moral will is what he's told us is right and wrong. In 1 John chapter 2, the writer says this, he says, And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the, the will of God abides forever. In the context, he's talking about us doing what we already know is right and wrong. If there's a lack of clarity about God's will in your life, get on board with his massive agenda in the world. He's saving people. And then get on board with what you already know is his moral will. You get clarity in your personal life on those two issues, and it forms guardrails for you to walk your path. I'm never going to step outside the providential will God is saving people, and I'm going to do my best to not step out of his moral will, how he's told me to treat people. And in that, in that middle place, he begins to develop you which is really his will all along. And then your life takes incredible twists and turns. And they're still challenging and difficult, but there is a force within that guides and directs. So it matters less about what job you hold as it does who you are in the job that you hold and what you represent and how you treat people. It matters less what you do to earn a living, which is often what we mean when we try to figure out God's will. I don't like my job. I don't think I'm walking in the perfect will of God. What do I need to do? It matters less how you put food on your table as who you are as you're trying to earn a living to make sure you do the responsibilities that God puts in front of you. So then if the moral will of God and the providential will of God is largely known to us, then the personal will of God is that unique picture he has for us. And the rallying verse here is very simple. Proverbs chapter 3. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not into your own understanding. And then in all your ways and all you're doing and all the comings and goings and your ins and in your outs and your thinking and in your acting, in all your ways acknowledge him and he'll straighten the path for you. He'll highlight the road. He'll level out the hills and the valleys and he'll make the path straight for you. Obvious and clear. Now there's a couple misconceptions that'll get in your way as we close this up. Some people believe that God's will, of course, means the path of least resistance. This is hard. Clearly, it's not God's will for me. <laughs> That's not true. The hardest stuff I've ever done is try to follow God's will. The most challenging and personally um, difficult things I've ever done in my life is attempt to follow what I already knew God wanted me to do. For me, and probably unlike you, it often shows up in my marriage. I know how I'm supposed to act and think and talk and engage and it doesn't take a rocket scientist. I spend five minutes. I can clearly identify an entire page of things I should be doing. I know what to do. I can probably do that right now. I won't because 
painful process, but I probably could. So let's talk about you for a minute. <coughs> I probably could, right? And so the challenge isn't knowing. It's doing the hard thing in front of me. It's Naaman saying, I don't want to dip in the muddy Jordan. And yet that was the very thing he had to do. I don't want to dip seven times. And yet, well, that was exactly what he had to do. We confuse an open door for an easy door. We confuse every open door if it looks easier. That's God's will for my life. Mm-mm. Not necessarily. Uh, this is easier. It's better. It's more money. It's a better opportunity. It's better, it's better visibility. People will think high more highly of me. It's clearly the w- open doors don't always indicate God's will, and certainly easy doors don't always. We've intentionally chosen to follow God, but that doesn't mean our lives are exempt from disappointment, illness, conflict, challenges. God's path is not the path of least resistance, which is why we need courage. Honestly, some of you, I'm not talking like you're not going to heaven and what I'm getting ready to say, so listen, and I'm not, I don't have anybody in mind. I just know, given the odds in this room, some of you have known for years what God's will for you is, and you are still not taking any definitive steps to make it happen. You're hurt, you love your money, you love your situation, it's difficult, it's hard, and instead of doing something, you've done largely nothing, and there's a frustration in you as you think about it, and as people try to encourage you, you actually feel frustrated, because you're not, in general, cooperating. Here's something I've learned. Almost everybody wants to make a difference in their life. But nobody wants to be different. <laughs> it's the truth. I, I struggle with that. I, I want my life to count, man. But when God comes to me and says, all right, Ben, we're, we're going we're gonna to do that. We're gonna, we're, we're gonna, you're going to be blown away by how I'm going to impact, use you to impact this world. But, but before we do that, let's, uh, let's talk about that in you. Everybody wants to be profoundly impacting on the world. And very few of us really want to engage the change that God wants to do right here. And here's something else I've noticed, and then we'll, we'll bring it to a head in one or two statements. I've noticed that church is a unique place because it's full of people that want to do big things. We do. God puts a dream in our heart, and it's grandiose and large. And thank God he does, because those things, like, like our building, like our desire to impact families, like our, 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 our constant heartbeat, God, give us souls for your kingdom. These big things, they pull us, and we want to do big things. But the truth is, friends, churches are built by people who do little things. And they do them consistently. We want our families to be beautiful and perfect and healthy and whole. And we've got this massive, grandiose vision, and we want it to be big But families that succeed, it's a long series of relatively small things. It's attitude spoken and forgiveness offered and acts of kindness given consistently over time. And as God makes the individual people and molds them and shapes them into who he would have them be, the doing begins to flow out of that. God's will for your life is to mold and shape you into the image of Christ. And he's ten times more concerned about that than where you're earning a paycheck. He really is. Which means that in whatever situation you find yourself, illness or health, 
plenty or want, conflict or peace. He wants to mold and shape you. And your participation and my participation with that begins to illuminate the path on exactly where we should go as his personal will for our lives begins to take shape. That's why, listen, I, my ego needs you to come to church. I do. I, I don't even turn around for the first two songs because half of you guys can't get here on time and I, I make the mistake and I turn around like, oh God, they're not coming this week. Oh Jesus, help me. <sighs> About the fourth song or so, we got a pretty good crowd. I can't take it. In my heart, I'm 43, guys. I'm overweight. I'm, I got to do something about it. You're killing me. My ego needs you to come, of course. My ego needs a big church. It does. And yet God says to me, then, you know, in light of what I've done for you and what I'm doing for you, that's really irrelevant. Big church, small church, big impact, small impact, as you define it from your limited perspective, when I'm up here in heaven seeing all that, let me mold you and shape you, and you get on board with that with a passion and with a vengeance and with a diligence. And don't be like Naaman, always pushing for the big thing. Why can't I go to the clear waters up here? Why won't the prophet meet me personally? And why won't they? Just do the thing that you know to do. Now we're all reading, many of us, just do something. Do something. Get off our butts and do something that we already know. And watch how God, as you do that, begins to mold and shape you. And 30 days and 45 days and a year and five years down the road, watch what he does with your life that is immeasurably more than you could ever ask or think. And quit blaming other people because you won't move forward this is how you discover god's will for your life step by step an entire life process always discovering always learning always growing and is it easy no no this has been one of the most challenging ministry years we've ever had as we've tried to hold a church together even as we try to build another one you guys have been incredibly gracious but is it what god wanted us to do yeah and God wants to do major things with you. And I can tell you nine times out of ten, 99 out of 100, he's going to start with you before he ever starts with the details around you. We're going to take communion together as a church. I've got some folks that are going to serve. They're going to come down. In a moment, we're going to take a couple steps together, but we're taking communion together. It's a sign that in some regard, we're all in this together. And as you're figuring out God's will for your life, you have people around here that will encourage you. That's why for four weeks I have hard-pressed you, make whatever changes you need to make, get into a small group. I don't know about you, but I need encouragement. I need encouragement. That's why I need my brothers around me. We have, our group hasn't been able to meet as much, but man, lately I've noticed that there's a desire among all, the texts are flying, you know? What an encouragement. I need that. I don't want you, the, the solo Christian out there with your own personal beacon doing the thing. God didn't save you so that you could walk alone. He saved you to be in the church. His bride. He calls it his family. That's what he wants for you. That's his goal for you. We're going to take communion together as a sign that we're doing this together. But also in the taking of communion, each one of us have to step out on our own and actually receive what he offers. The broken body for your wholeness and the shed blood for your covering. Receive it in grace that he offers. Let's take a few next steps together very quickly and then we'll take communion. So, so, so these are kind of 30,000 foot view things. 
Do you want to receive Jesus as your Savior? Because he's very interested in a relationship with you. Can you admit, I'm not perfect, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. If you can, then you're a candidate, man. If you're not perfect, you're a candidate for a relationship with Jesus. Next step B says, I want to accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior for the first time. Next step B says, I want to get baptized. I want to go public with my faith. I, like Naaman, I want to go into the water and whatever God has for me, I'm just going to submit to that. I'm going I'm to receive whatever he has. Next step C. I, I want to drill down on who I, who I want to be, who I believe God's called, not what he wants me to do, but who he wants me to be. You, you, I don't, listen, if you're 50 and you still have some work here, that's okay. I do too. I'm still discovering who God wants me to be and the character he's developing in me. Why don't, why don't we check the box together the staff and I will pray for and then you go this week and make this a matter of prayer. God, mold and shape my heart into who you'd have me be. Next step, D. I'm not taking the steps I already know I need to take. And today, I want to take one. I, I don't know what the one is you need to take, but I bet in five minutes, honestly, between here and home as you're driving, in the worship songs we sing, as you're standing in line to take communion, I bet if you said, God, would you show me just one thing to do? And you had a willingness in your heart to do whatever it was. I bet you could leave today with your one thing to do. If you want to do that, check the box. Next step, E. My heart breaks here. I've let hurt and distraction keep me from engaging. And I need some healing and renewed vision to walk in courage and boldness. Do you have enough courage to just admit that your hurt is holding you back? That there's a root of bitterness in you? That there's this anti-authoritarian thing in you that keeps you from participating with God, the ruler of the universe? Would you let him heal that and open a door for you? Let's pray about these things, and then we'll take communion together. Lord Jesus, God, you are an awesome God. God, this week I have seen your hand at work bringing grace and new beginnings and fresh starts healed hearts. I've seen you bring families together in the middle of pain. God, I've seen in just this week, in the darkest moments, your light shining. That's your will for all of us. And you've called us, God, to participate. And the truth is, you've not been near as mysterious as we pretend you are. And so, God, would you today give us courage and boldness as you've been doing it as a church for us corporately as we've tried to step out, God, would you do that individually? My prayer, Father, is not that we would build a great, big, new, and awesome church and fill it with people, but that the people who come would begin to walk in the fullness that you offer. God, we, we want to be the church that you're growing and developing. Lord, as we take communion today, heal our brokenness. Cover our sin, restore us, feed us, nourish us, strengthen us to do all that you put in front of us. We pray it in Jesus' name, the strong Son of God. Amen.